Good morning, Woodland Hills. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Uh, check out my eyes. Do they look different to you? Look at them closely. <laughs> Zoom in. Yeah, they're pretty, uh, it looked like I haven't slept for a couple days. Or uh, one person last night said, you look like you got in a fight. I said, yeah, you should see the other guy. Uh, yeah, I got beady eyes, and, and it's because uh, the allergies, I bet some of you can testify to this, the allergies in August, the, I always get a little bit of scratchy eyes and puffy eyes and stuff at this time of year, but this year's been the absolute worst by far and away, easily the worst year for allergies I've ever gone through. Woke up this morning and I got crusty stuff in my eye and I can't see. Anyways, that's why I look so ugly. Normally I'm just so good looking, but uh, you know, I'll blame it on, on the... <laughs> You're not buying that, are you, Sean? Okay, well, anyways, anyways, add that to the list of things to love about 2020. And <laughs> one more thing, that's all we, I'm sure it's not the last. This is a season that just keeps on giving. More and more and more, don't we love it? Okay, well, we're uh, in the Sermon on the Mount here, and we're up to verse 7, which reads like this. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Another passage I want us to be thinking about, I'll come to these passages in a little bit down my message, but it's James chapter 2, verse 13. We sang about it with our first song. It says, For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. You want to live in judgment? You're going to receive judgment. The mercy you show is the mercy you're going to receive. And then James says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Just lock that in. I'll get to it in a little bit. Uh... All lightheartedness aside, I, I uh, come this morning with a heavy heart, I'm, uh, with a grieving heart, and I'm sure many of us do. It's been one of those weeks again. Uh, I grieve over the shooting of Jacob Blake, and I grieve for his family and for his friends, his loved ones. I thank God that he's still alive. Can't walk, but he's still alive. But in solidarity with the black community, we grieve over this and grieve over the meaning of this, the pattern that has gone on in the history of this country. You can't isolate this event from all the other injustices that people of color have experienced in this land from before its very inception. My, uh, my grandson, I was out fishing with him the other night and uh, what caught his eye was the boycott because he's really into basketball and a game he was really planning on watching got canceled and it's because they're boycotting and, and so he didn't really know, understand what this was about, so he asked me, what's a boycott? And I explained to him what a boycott is. And then he asked, well, why are the basketball teams boycotting their own game? And I explained to him why they were doing this. Um, and and he, he had gotten on, because of this boycott thing, gotten on the internet and looked at some videos and looked at the video of Jacob uh, Blake being shot. And at one point he just says, if I get pulled over, I don't know what I'd do. And I said to him, well, so... When you get pulled over, you better know exactly what you're going to do. And then we went through the drill. Uh, I wish I never had to have that conversation. I look forward to a time when those conversations will no longer be necessary. And while I understand the anger, I, I also grieve over just the mass destruction of property and, and, and lives, two lives that were taken, and people were injured, an officer was injured during the mayhem that ensued. Violence is never productive in the long run, and Often, and this is the case, it's counterproductive. It's completely, it, it's undermining the case that they, that it's feeding into the narrative that they want to be refuting. I grieve the rush to judgment that happened in Minneapolis. Uh, you know, you're in a tense environment, a gun goes off, and people assume that the police fired it, and, and mayhem ensues, and 
Thousands, millions of dollars of property are destroyed. Turns out that the guy shot himself. But uh, the environment, what kind of environment does that? It, where, where people just go to a snap judgment. It's an environment where they're already, everyone's on high stress. Their amygdalas are already activated. They're in a fight or flight mode. And it, all it takes is one thing to happen. This is how wars start. It's like a powder keg and it just explodes. And so we got to ask the, the question, what is it that brought us to this state? Not just in, in, in Minneapolis, but, but around the country where we have this, this tension that is just rife with danger and all it takes is the right event to cause it to explode. And how can we begin to reverse this atmosphere, this toxic atmosphere that we're in? I, I, I grieve over the mess, just the mess that we're in. I grieve not only over the racial divisions, but over the political divisions. Uh, Sometimes it feels kind of hopeless, to be honest with you. It seems to me that we're in something like, like the relationship we have with ourselves right now is the relationship we used to have with Russia. It's called a Cold War. It's a war that's mostly underneath the surface. But when certain events happen, boom, that Cold War becomes an actual war in a certain locality. We're in this state. I uh, watched segments of the Republican uh, convention, and before that I watched segments of the Democratic convention. I, I want to watch both. I, I've said this before, I try to do this with news, to have, because I want to understand the, the inside of people, what makes them think, and you know, to, just to, under, to get on the inside of their skin. And so I watched both of these, these conventions, and I'm telling you, I, I don't know if some of you did this, but uh, it's, like, it's like we're two, from two different universes. Or maybe it'd be more accurate to say, I felt like I was watching two totally different t TV reality shows. It's like if an alien came down and all they had to go on was to judge humanity on the basis of the Republican and then the Democratic Convention, I think they'd conclude that these folks live on different planets, but they just call it by the same name and, and wave the same flag because it's to two totally different universes. After two conventions, oh, we, we finally have something we, everyone agrees on. Uh, this is one conviction that both sides hold with equal passion. And that is that if the other side wins, America as we know it is doomed. <laughs> it's, they all agree on this, that if, if the other side wins, we're facing the apocalypse. Because see, that other side, they're the corrupt side. That other side, they're out to destroy American values. The other side, they're in favor of tyranny. The other side, they just want the mob to rule. That other side, they're all corrupt. Both sides are saying this. We are the team right and righteous versus the team wrong and evil, and we will save America from those folks. That's what both sides are saying. And I am right now, I'll tell you my core conviction is that if we as a country don't outgrow this you are my enemy mindset, then I think both sides will be proven right before too long. Because a country, a nation, a kingdom divided against itself can never stand. The fact that we have nasty politics is nothing new. We've had that from the start. Go back and look at some of the early elections. They had gunfights that broke out, okay? So uh, that's not new. But what's new is this. You know, back then, the biggest form of social media had was a pamphlet, and they took, you had to print them up and circulate them, whatever. And so it's very hard to draw large groups of people in on your, on your rage and your anger. So the virus was contained. It just couldn't spread very fast. Now we have the internet, and now we have social media, and now... Viruses can spread very fast. One person's hate, can, you can quickly mobilize a crowd, you can get a platform, you can build a movement, you can get a rally going in, you can do it in an instant. So we've got the same nastiness we've always had, it's just now it's on steroids, 
And now it's being mobilized into separate armies. But as internet and social media, see people self-select themselves into a quarantine group that shares a particular narrative. And in that quarantine group, they develop an us versus them mindset. In that quarantine group, they, they have all, their views are always confirmed and, and, and rarely seriously challenged. So in that quarantine group, that self-selected group, that silo that people get themselves into by virtue of the internet, people's categories get hardened. Their hearts get hardened. It damages our brain circuitry. When all you hear is confirmation of your views, it, it hardens your brain circuitry. You lose brain flexibility. You're not as able to empathize the way you used to, to understand the opposing point of view. And if we keep going down this direction, it, it, it becomes the case that you don't even want to hear the other point of view. You just assume that they're stupid or they don't care, even though they say they, they care. And the state that we're in now, so far as I can see, folks, is that we've got silos, but there's, there's no shared, very little shared reality between us. Uh, there's very facts, agreeing upon the facts. We have different versions of the facts. We, don't, we, have, uh, uh, we no longer have trusted sources that we all go to. It used to be that you all had a couple of news stations and they all had it in their interest to try to make it as neutral as possible, to draw as large an audience as possible. Now what draws is the opposite. You want to be as partisan as possible. Inflame the crowd. That's what gets the... the the rating is up. So we no longer, longer have trusted sources of information. People are getting, we all rely on sources to get information about the outside world, and all those sources have filters, have biases. And if you're only getting it from one source, well, then your brain gets fashioned after that source, and you get to the point where you can't understand the other point of view. So people are not reasoning, they're not uh, calmly talking about issues. There's very little talk about, genuine talk about issues. All they're doing is screaming, hollering. What does, that, what does that accomplish? There's no shared narrative. See, it used to be that the American narrative, it, 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 it subsumed both the Republican and the Democratic narrative and others as well. Yeah, they had differences, but it was all, there's also still a shared narrative. We're going for the same goals. But now, so far as I can see, we've drift, they, they, they've drifted so far apart, these silos, that I don't see a shared narrative. You have a shared name, you have a shared, you know, America, you have a shared flag, maybe a few shared values, but... And see, in, 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 with all these folks, this is what happens when you let yourself get siloed. Everything becomes obvious to you. You're so obviously right, they're so obviously wrong, and you so obviously care, and they so obviously don't. And you're so obviously smart, and they're so obviously stupid. Everything's obvious. And see, everyone is feeding on the buzz of being right. I belong to team righteous and team right. You belong to team evil, team wrong. And if you feed off that buzz. Very few people are trying to hear the other side, trying to find the good in the other side, trying to learn from the other side. No, we just, you just got to hate them. You just got to hate them. Jesus said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, and history has proven that true over and over again. And if it's true in general of kingdoms, it's especially true of a democracy where you invite divisions. Okay, you got to learn to live with divisions. How do you run a democracy unless you have some shared trust in institutions, some shared trust in sources, some shared trust in what basic facts are. I, I don't know how you do it. Social scientists, they've always worried about, uh, will, will, human will our incredible in ingenuity in creating technology, we're geniuses at creating technology, will that ever outrun our moral capacity to know what to do with it, to handle it, to restrain it? They've worried about that. Now, a lot of their attention has been on, on AI, on artificial intelligence. But 
I submit to you that the internet and social media might just be the thing that they've been worried about. If it's not, it's too close for comfort. Because here we have this great technology and we can disseminate information so good and it has all these conveniences. It can stay in touch with friends and blah, 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 blah. Wonderful stuff. Ah! But see, if we're not disciplined about this, if, if, we, if, if, if we let ourselves get siloed, this could be the thing that does us in. We, we don't know how to handle ourselves. We're not mature enough to transcend the partisanship that social media encourages. But here's the thing. See, what, what, is, what is the negative for the culture can be a positive for the church if the church will be the church. If we'll really stand up and be who Jesus calls us to be. The darker it gets, the brighter light shines. And this is a time for the church to be a light on the, a city set on the hill, shining, beacon of hope. The question comes down to this. Can we model a third way? Not tiptoeing you know, around opinions because we're afraid of offending anybody. No, but having our own narrative. It's called a kingdom narrative. Living in that narrative, and, and can, part of that narrative is, can we model for the world something the world can't do for itself? Namely, talk decently and lovingly and respectfully with people who fundamentally disagree with us about important matters. Because if we can do that, if we, if we can model that, well, that will get noticed. Because there's not a whole lot of that going on, you may have, ha, have seen. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, do everything in love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Do everything in love. Can we be a people who do everything in love, including when we dialogue about different political positions or theological positions or the price of pastrami? I don't care. Can we do everything in love? Think everything in love, because thinking is doing something. Can love define what we're all about? Um, and in doing that, we will show a third way. I, I've said it many times here, but if you are ever in a debate and, and proving yourself to be smarter than the, the other person, uh, winning the debate, making your opponent maybe look bad, if that becomes more important to you than showing love to the person in the process of debating them, then do the kingdom a favor and shut up. Because you can win the intellectual argument, but you've totally lost the spiritual argument. 1 Corinthians 13, modified in the Boyd version, would go something like this. Uh, you can have all the best arguing skills in the, in the world and have the facts at your fingertips and you can win every debate that you're in. But if you do not have love, it is worthless. It's a noisy gong. It's a clanging cymbal. It's a bunch of religious noise. Think about that. Can we be that people? It's also a time for the church to shine in another way. Um, given the state of this country and... and the, how deep the divisions are, and no one has any idea how to walk this back. Uh, it makes it easier for some of us to put all of our hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it, it's the one advantage of, of, of beginning to feel like there's, it's hopeless in America is that it reminds you that our hope was never supposed to be in America. Our hope was always supposed to be in Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his right relatedness. All my trust is in him. Nations will come and go. They always have. They rise and they fall. They reign supreme and they say this is forever. But invariably, they all eventually crumble. I don't know the future of America. I think we should work hard to preserve as much as we can, really. But, but my hope is not built, isn't in that. And your hope shouldn't be either. All of our hope is found in the one who saved us, who redeemed us, who rescued us, who's in the process of transforming us. All of our hope is in the, the power of self-sacrificial love. All of our hope should be in the power of mercy to triumph over judgment. All of our hope is in God's promise that the world's not going to end in, 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 in chaos. No, he's going to come and establish his kingdom in fullness. And our job until then is to be laying the, down the, the runway strip, if you will, giving the world a sneak preview of what is to come. Can we do that? Church, can we be this ray of hope and this ray of, of light forward in these times that are so full of judgment? In a world full of judgment, can we be a people who are merciful? Can we be a people in whom mercy triumphs over judgment? 
Now, now mercy, the, the, the core idea of mercy is, is, is pardon. Uh, you are guilty of, of a crime, guilty of some infraction, and you deserve this judgment, but instead of the judgment, you get, an, you get unexpected kindness. You, you're, you're forgiven, you're pardoned. That's, the court had mercy on you. Uh, some folks equate mercy and grace, uh, but th- this is something of a confusion. Grace is a broader concept than mercy. Uh, grace includes mercy, it includes a pardon, but it goes beyond that and in, 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 in also having a connotation of empowering us. So God, we're saved because we're forgiven, we're pardoned. Our, as far as the east is from the west, our sins are cast from us, hallelujah. But by God's grace, we're also being transformed in the image of Jesus Christ because that's part of the salvation package as well. So, so grace is, is, is mercy plus empowerment. Mercy itself is just about pardon. But there is a broader sense of mercy. Um, and and it, it's when you show unexpected, it, it doesn't involve a pardon necessarily, but it's when you show unexpected kindness towards someone or something that you'd be maybe expected to not show kindness towards. So for example, there's uh, one of the heroes of the Anabaptist tradition is a guy named Dirk Willems. Lived in the 16th century at a time when all the other branches of Christianity were persecuting the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists, to the credit, to the credit, was the only branch of the Protestant Reformation that would not fight back, which is why they were almost exterminated, okay? So... Dirk Williams was an Anabaptist, and he gets arrested up in the Netherlands. And uh, the punishment for being an Anabaptist is, is you're drowned or you're beheaded. You're put to death. Um, so Dirk Williams is arrested. He's facing execution. Somehow he manages to escape from his prison. And he runs, makes a beeline to the woods near this, the prison where he's being held. But a guard notices him. So this guard takes off after him. And a chase ensues through the woods. I don't know how long it went, but at one point, Dirk Williams came to a frozen pond and he ran across it. The guard comes to this frozen pond and tries to do the same thing, but he falls in. Maybe it was heavier or maybe the ice was already, who knows. But he falls in and he's facing certain death. He cries out for help. I don't know what exactly he said, but in one way or another, he was saying, will you have mercy on me? I know that by every sense of justice, you should leave me here to die, but will you have mercy on me? His life was in the balance. Dirk Willems decides to go back and rescue this guy. Um, judgment would have said, let the guy die. You were, you were, you were imprisoned unjustly, and, and now he's chasing you to rescue you again. You have every right just to keep on running. But in Dirk Williams, mercy triumphed over judgment, and he went back and saved that man's life. Risked his own life going back on the ice to save that man. Knowing that now, if you escape... Now, the, and get rearrested, the crime for that isn't beheading or drowning. Those are nice ways to die, by comparison. You're burned alive. And they would do this with some leaders of the Anabaptist movement just to make a point. Uh, he knew that, and yet he had mercy anyways. This guard did not return the favor. The guard promptly rearrests him and brings him back to the prison. Uh, and shortly thereafter, he's burned alive at the stake. And I sometimes wonder, what it was that guard thinking when he watched Dirk Williams being burned alive at the stake after having saved his life? I pray that God used that to make some inroads in this guy's life because he obviously needs some inroads in his life. So that was mercy. You showed unexpected kindness. And, and to, to be a merciful person is to be showing unexpected kindness all over the place in the way we carry ourselves, conduct ourselves in the world. Where's the chance to show kindness where maybe you know, we are inconvenienced a little bit or maybe the person at some point had wronged us. When we do that, we're showing mercy. And we have mercy towards other people, but we also have mercy towards the earth and the animal kingdom. 
because um, they are at our mercy. In fact, our first mandate in the Bible is to take care of them. And so to show mercy to animals, for example, might be you eat mercifully, which just means you eat with an awareness that you don't want to cause unnecessary suffering for animals. Uh, they're at your mercy. Use it kindly. Uh, things like that. So we're to carry ourselves as merciful people. To do that means the opposite of mercy is judgment. To be a merciful people is to be a people who aren't living by their judgments. A judgment is the attitude that I hope you get what's coming to you. You committed a crime, therefore you are a criminal, and criminals get this. You act like a jerk, therefore you are a jerk, and jerks get this kind of treatment. You get what you deserve. You belong to that team that's wrong and that's evil. Uh, and, 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 and you belong to the team that's destroying America and that's tearing it apart, that wants the mob to rule, that wants tyranny, that wants to give it to freedom or whatever. We get this judgment there. We lock it in and we say, you deserve to lose. Anyone who votes that way deserves to be, not just to lose, but to be silenced, to be muzzled, to be eradicated from this country if at all possible, because otherwise they'll come back next season and, and, and try to beat us. Uh, you, you are one of those who I don't have to listen to. You've got nothing to say to me. You're one of those that deserve contempt and scorn. And that's kind of where we've gotten ourselves to, contempt and scorn. There's very little mercy being shown these days. In fact, things are so polarized that to show a little mercy to someone's enemy might put you in danger of becoming their enemy. <clears throat> I had a, uh, the other night I, I was watching the Republican convention and Vernon Jones uh, is this Democrat, African-American Democrat, who decided to break from his party and vote for Donald Trump, which I thought was pretty interesting. And his speech, while I don't agree with a lot of what he said, but his speech, I thought, showed really independent thinking and, and, and a lot of courage. And so I just said, I want to you know, applaud the independent thinking and courage of, of uh, Vernon Jones. Boom. Oh, uh, for some folks, that was not a nice thing to do. That was, came back, I got piled on. Are you kidding me? You tell me you're not being serious. What? Done. You know, it, it's, it's, to say something nice, see, love tells us, 1 Corinthians 13, that we're supposed to be looking for the best, to believe the best, to hope for the best, to look for the best in everyone. How could that be wrong to say, hey, that was independent thinking. Do I agree with it? No. But man, give, you know, give credit where credit's due. But in these times, no, it's gotten so polarized to give a compliment. Well, maybe that means that you belong on the other side. This, these judgments, folks, are, gonna, are, are destroying us. They are destroying us. Judgments always reduce people down to a label. You are a this, you are a that, you belong in this category, you belong in that file, that's what you are, you're a this. And we have a label so we don't have to deal with individuals, because if you deal with an individual life, well, it takes time and it takes, it takes love, and you gotta get on the inside, and it's complex and it's messy, all of our lives are, but with a judgment, we can just say, that's all irrelevant, you are a this. All I need to know, I know. Why? Because you're a this. Got the category. The minute you've got that, you're a this, that judgmental mindset, well, now, you know what? You're not even, you're not even seeing a person in front of you. Uh, you're seeing a category. You're seeing a file. You're seeing your own judgment. What you're seeing is a projection of your own judgment. You're not loving the person. You're loving your judgment, and therefore not loving the person. You know why we do it? Uh, we're, we like the buzz. You can show this neurologically, actually. Uh, pleasure centers get up. When, when we feel that like we're on team right and righteous, it gives us a buzz. Every, all of our behavior, every single one of our behaviors has a purpose, right? So you see somebody, and you have an automatic thought. Ooh, what are, blah, 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 whatever you think. Okay, what was the purpose of that thought? What did that thought do? One thing, it made you feel that at least you're not like that. 
You fed off the contrast. That's what a judgment is. It gives you a buzz. However imperfect you are, at least you're not like that. We judge because it gives us a momentary feeling of feeling superior, of feeling right, of feeling righteous against those who are not right and righteous because they disagree with us. So these narratives that we get siloed into are actually judgments we get siloed into. And judgments are the opposite of mercy. Here's what Jesus says about judging. Listen to this. Uh, We'll get to it in about four years on the Sermon on the Mount, I suppose, if we keep going uh, in this direction. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be be the measure you get. Why are you looking for the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? Okay, so don't judge. If if you don't want to be judged, are you worried about the great judgment day? Well, it's a reality, so it's something to think about. But if you don't want to be judged, then don't judge. The degree to which you judge is the degree to which you're going to be judged. This reflects what um, I've called the ricochet effect of sin, and it runs throughout the whole Bible. The punishment for sin is built into the sin itself. God just wired the creation such that sin punishes itself sooner or later. It's inherently self-destructive. So if you want to go down the road of judgment, Jesus is saying, you will arrive at a judgmental destiny. Is that what you want? But if you don't want to go down, arrive at a, a judgmental destiny, then don't go down the road of judgment. Get off that road and get on the road of mercy. If you want to receive mercy, start being merciful, because the merciful will receive mercy. Uh, Folks, this is so foundational to what I consider just the heart of the Christian faith. It's absolutely essential. Don't judge. Judgment takes us back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. This is the original sin of the Bible. This is, that forbidden tree was God's no trespassing sign. It was God's way of saying, hey, be like me in terms of how you love, but don't try to be like me in terms of, of, of what you think you can judge. Don't eat from this tree. Because the minute you eat of this tree, you're not going to be doing what I called you to do, that is to love. We can't love and judge at the same time. Follow this quite carefully. See, love is about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself, regardless of their merits or demerits. It's ascribing worth to another. This is what God does for us on the cross. Uh, he ascribes unsurpassable worth to us by paying an unsurpassable price for us. Um, 1 John 3.16, that's the very definition of love in the Bible. Judgment is the opposite of that. When you judge, ooh, look at that. Why would he be doing that or whatever? Well, well see, we're, we're now ascribing worth to ourselves at cost to them. Uh, we're making ourselves feel taller by making them shorter. At least I'm not like that. You can't be both ascribing unsurpassable worth to somebody while you're at the same time stealing worth from them to give yourself worth. It doesn't work like that. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, 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 is idolatry because you're feeding your soul with something in a role that only God should play. You're trying to feel significant and worthwhile and, and, and good about yourself by your judgment, not by what God thinks about you as revealed on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's idolatry. And the reason we do it, and that's the number one sin of the Bible, by the way, in terms of uh, it, 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 emphatic denials of it, in terms of frequency of mentioned, idolatry is foundational, it's, it's part of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, and uh, yet we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We're addicted to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're so addicted and we do it so much that we don't notice that we do it. It's part of our autopilot. It's like the nose on our face. We don't even know it, but we're involved in judgments all the time. Sometimes just stop and put a megaphone to your brain and listen to what you were thinking. Um, I guarantee you, if you were honest about it, you'll find a whole lot of garbage there that you probably weren't even aware of. And every one of those judgments that you have 
You're feeding your own superiority by doing it. You're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So to free us from that nasty forbidden tree, um, Jesus says, do the opposite of that. In judgments, we always stand over someone and look down. Jesus says, oh no, do the opposite. Uh, why are you looking for a dust particle when you've got a log coming out of your own eye? And what he's saying there is this. You, here's how you should consider your sin. Rather than considering their sin to be the log, and you maybe have a dust particle or two, but no, they got a log, because you're superior, right? No, assume that you're the one with the log. You're the one with the log. And a log's got about, I would guess, 10 million specks in it, right? Specks of dust. So consider your sin to be 10 million times worse than, than, than whatever you think you see in another person. Now, he's, he's using some hyperbole here, of course. And he's not saying, oh, feel shame and beat yourself up and, you know, whatever. No, he's just saying, realize that you are in no position to ever judge another person. No, you're not in a position to look down. If you consider yourself to have a log, then you're the worst of sinners. And if you're, the, if you're at the bottom, you can only look up, which is a way of saying you can only respect. Paul says the same thing. First Timothy 1, he says this. Here's a saying that is worthy of full acceptance. Everybody should accept this fully. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's the saying. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That should be our, 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 our awareness. And see, if we internalize that humble mindset, we will be a people who are merciful. Because if you have that mindset, if you really internalize that and let it become part of your psyche, it, it, well, then you become aware of how, much, how desperately you need mercy. And when you understand how much you need mercy, how can you not extend that mercy to others? You know, in political communities, and this is true of a lot of communities, it's premised on superiority. You unite around a certain claim to superiority. We are the people who... Stand for law and order, the people, blah, blah, blah. Or we are the people who uh, care about the uh, immigrants and, and African Americans and, and police brutality. Or, so they have claims of superiority and they unite around that and it's always divisive because there's always competing claims of authority. But in the church, we have to be, we're a community that can't claim any superiority. Why? Because we're a community of people who know that we are the worst of sinners. Our unity isn't found in a claim of superiority. Our unity initially is found in a claim to brokenness. Uh, we're not team right and righteous. We're team broken. We're team broken. Uh, we're a team that stands by the mercy of God. We don't unite at the top with a superiority claim. We unite at the bottom with a brokenness claim. And see, folks, that's, that, that, that's, that, that's where we can feel each other, feel the unity of the human species in the brokenness. When we, when we unite at the bottom instead of trying to unite at the top, well, it taps into something that we all have in common. It's, it's, uh, it creates a, a, an atmosphere of humility rather than judgment. And if you're not making any claim to superiority, that means to be a community that's merciful, the community that confesses its brokenness is a community where no one's going about trying to measure and rate and, and size up and square up and compare and contrast and judge or any of that. No, it's I'm broken, you're broken, and that's where we start. That's our starting point. We're sinners on the road to death. But see, God pardoned us. God, in his mercies, unfathomable mercy, came down and did all that could possibly be done to get us off the road of judgment onto the road of mercy and to be a distinct community of people who don't buy into the polarities of the world, of people who, who have one ultimate allegiance, and that's to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And we're always seeking that. To be a people of mercy means we... Mercy triumphs over judgment. And there's a whole lot of judgments that we're immersed in right now that we have to triumph over. When you realize 
how much God has extended mercy to you, then you can't help but become a merciful person towards others. Um, I suppose you can help it, but you shouldn't. And the Spirit of God's pulling in the opposite direction. Now here's the challenge today. I just use the word sin, that we're the worst of sinners. I know to a lot of people that those are taboo words. And there's reasons for that. They were abused, misused, whatever. But see, our culture is kind of losing the very concept of sin. And certainly the idea that I'm the worst of sinners is very foreign. Most people feel pretty good about themselves. About themselves. They're better than average. And it's not surprising because our brains are always congratulating themselves. In fact, that's, evolutionists tell us that that's one of the reasons the higher, function brain, the higher brain functions evolved was to kind of congratulate the brain on its great achievements and to help the brain get its achievements. So wherever you end up, you probably feel righteous because that's why you ended up there. You, you, and now you've joined a group of who are righteous, so you're always getting it all, all, all confirmed. Um, so it's, it's people that don't feel like they need mercy. Here's one concept that we can never lose, and that's the concept of sin. Because if you lose the concept of sin, you're going to lose the concept of mercy. Uh, I want us to see that we are, in fact, though the culture speaks against it, uh, we, are, we are the worst of sinners. I, I, I'm now going to spend the, next, the rest of this message, pretty much, uh, delighting you by convincing you that you're a sinner, all right? That's my job. That sounds so fundamentalist. Sinner friend today. Just hear me out. Because so look at... You judge, you judge. And judgment is idolatry. It's getting false life. It puts you on the road to death. Idolatry and death are always associated in the Bible. So you are an idolater. Acknowledge that. And you do this hundreds, if not thousands of times a day. Now maybe you don't believe that, but I wanna challenge you here. This will flush out the pollution in your brain. And it is, I think, one of the fundamental disciplines of the Christian life. We teach it all the time. Commit to having one thought about everybody who hasn't invited you to have any other thoughts about them. Well, we all need people in our life who we've invited to share their perceptions of us, uh, who help us live out the kingdom walk because we all have blind spots. We all need people intimately involved in our life. But that, that's a relatively small group. For everybody else, we're allowed one opinion. And the only thing we know about them really is that Jesus Christ died for them. So we know that they have unsurpassable worth because Jesus paid an unsurpassable price to them. Our job of, as kingdom people 101 is to agree with God about that. If Jesus is your Lord, then you're his disciple. You have to agree with him. If he says they have unsurpassable worth, you have to agree. So in your thoughts, agree with God about that. And start blessing the person accordingly. Thank you, God, for that person, for the worth they have, and just pay a little blessing prayer on them. If you're sincere on trying to do that, throughout the day, you will bump into all sorts of thoughts that are not remotely compatible with that. You'll, you'll, act, you'll, you'll bump into all your judgments, and when you do, just calmly set them aside, and keep on uh, doing the one opinion that you're allowed to have them, have them, and that is that they have unsurpassable worth. And every one of those judgmental thoughts, you're thinking for a purpose. And, and, and the reason is because it gives you a buzz. And every one of those thoughts is an idol. Every one of those thoughts blocks the flow of love into you and flowing through you. Every one of those thoughts is an example of judgment triumphing over mercy rather than the other way around. Every one of those thoughts is a step down the road of death. You need the mercy of God. Now add, add to that, this idea, Jesus says if you hate, it's the same as murder, and if you lust, it's the same as adultery. So honestly, ask yourself the question, how many people, by J Jesus' standards, how many people have you murdered, and how many people have you had affairs with? And when you internalize that, you're not going to be all that quick to start judging others just because they actually had a physical affair. When you know you've had a thousand of them in your brain, you need the mercy of God. And then I just encourage you to be honest with yourself. 
Try this where you just go inside and commit to being ruthlessly honest. What is there? And ask the Spirit to help you. And it's scary. Because most of the time we hide this stuff from ourselves. We are so good at deceiving ourselves. Maybe, I'm, maybe it's just me. But Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 3. So, so when you do that, I think you'll discover, most of us will discover that we're not quite as good as we put on. We're not quite as truthful as we put on. We're more duplicitous than we let on. Uh, we're, we're, we're more judgmental than we let on. We're more lustful than we let on. We're more deceptive than we let on. Take an honest look at yourself and you will see that you need the mercy of God. Paul sums it up this way. He says, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he might be merciful to all. He's imprisoned all under disobedience. Now, the metaphor here is God is a judge. And what, what Paul is saying here is it, it's like God's his judge and we have been sentenced and found guilty. We've been imprisoned. We're there already. And this is a death sentence. We're guilty of idolatry. Um, all, everyone's here. And see, we're all in the same place. We're all facing the same fate apart from Jesus Christ. And so in this state, there can be no hierarchies, no rankings, no filings. No one's going to be getting proud. If you're on death row, no one's bragging about how their murder wasn't as bad as your murder or whatever. It's, no, it's irrelevant. We're all in the same boat. But God consigned us all in this disobedience so that he might have mercy on us. The reason God consigns us in judgment is so he can have mercy on us. The reason God judges is to have mercy on us. He wants us to see our desperate need for him and to turn from our bondage and, and, and be set free. Uh, God always has a redemptive heart. It's restorative judgment. He delights in showing mercy, which means he never delights in bringing judgment, which is just about letting us go our own way. No, he, he, he delights in mercy. The question is, will you, will you humble yourself and receive that mercy and confess your brokenness? That's how you receive it. It's saying, I know I need that and, 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 and receive it. And when you do that, now, you're, now you belong to Team Broken. We start with that brokenness. It doesn't matter how you're broken. It doesn't matter the degree to which you're broken because no one's got any interest in comparing brokenness. We're broken. That's all that needs to be said. And see, the community that, that, that knows it's broken is a community that can be merciful. And, and that means that we can see people. We don't see categories. We don't see files. It means that to be a person of mercy means you don't, you don't dismiss someone, put them in a camp because of their opinions about something or their lifestyle or anything like that. We don't reduce people to categories because people are people. Our unity is found not on the top, it's found on the bottom. It doesn't matter what others do to us or whether they say to us or anything of the sort. Our job is to show unexpected kindness. When people might think you'd be justified doing this and having them see their do, no, we choose mercy and knowing that mercy triumphs over judgment. So I'll close with this. Folks, this is a unique time that we're in. It, it's a unique, it's a very difficult time, but it, it's it's... This is the time to put all your hope in Jesus Christ. Nations rise, nations fall, but Jesus Christ's kingdom lasts forever and ever and ever. I encourage you to put all your hope in that basket and think on that and let it become part of the narrative that you live in. Live in a long narrative, not a short narrative. Secondly, I encourage us to always be getting all of our life, our worth, our significance from Jesus Christ because when we get that, we don't need to be trying to suck, suck it off the rightness of our opinions. We don't need, it frees us from, from being involved in idolatry. And the third thing is that this is a chance for the sh church to shine. If we can do what the culture can do, if we can love in a way that the church can't love and talk about difficult topics in respectful and dignified ways, well, that will be a beacon of light. That will be an invitation of, of folks. I encourage you, as an exercise, commit to, try it this week. Commit to having one thought and one thought only about everyone who's, who hasn't invited you to have more than one thought. And just start blessing people. 
Start setting aside your judgments. When you find yourself judging, just set it aside and turn to the one task that you have as, uh, uh, as, as uh, a, a Jesus follower. And guard your hearts. I, guard your hearts. We're surrounded by judgments that are calling at us to want to suck us in. Guard your heart so you stay merciful and stay off of that road of judgment. All right, I'd like to ask my uh, panel to come up here. It's not my panel. It's, it's a panel. But come on up here, and uh, we, oh, and I, we had questions. You can be sending in questions. I don't know if I announced that earlier. I might have forgot, but uh, uh, we're, we're still taking them. So come on up here, and I turn it over to the lovely Shauna Bourne. Thank you, Greg, for that message. Um, Greg left us with a challenge, and I'm just going to be honest and say that, that it truly is a challenge, and I don't think it's something that we can endeavor to accomplish alone, and we're not meant to, and we, we have to surround ourselves with community, with people who can help us along, who can encourage us and challenge us when we're, we're slipping away. And so we're excited because around here at Woodland Hills, we've been thinking through and praying through ways to help uh, us and others, and you guys do that. And so we have uh, some new ways that we weren't, we're gonna experiment with having some smaller group gatherings uh, to help us with some of this. Uh, we're not ready to tell you all the details yet because they're still being finalized, but just stay tuned. We just, we know that in order to be merciful and not judgmental and to walk in the ways of Jesus, we can't do that alone. We need people, we need community, and we want to help foster that. Thank you, Greg, for your message. My pleasure. Thank you, David, for Hi. being here. Yeah, well, face good to be here. Yeah, good yeah. to see you for a while. Yeah, thank you, good to thank see you. And thank you all for sending in questions. We really appreciate it. Do you need to take a breath? I, I'm, I'm good. Just Dave will answer the first one. That's right. Catch my breath. We'll get it going on a strong, strong path. <laughs> no pressure. Well, the first question we have actually circles back to a sermon, Greg, that you gave about three months ago after George Floyd. Mm -hmm. um, and it was entitled, Please, I Can't Breathe. Right. Really powerful sermon. Um, but in that sermon, um, and I'm not, I don't know exactly what you said, but at one point in the sermon, um, you said something like, uh, l when you looked into the face of Chauvin, right. the officer Chauvin, it was like looking to, into the face of white supremacy. Right. And so we have a viewer who is, who is asking the question, wasn't that a judgment? Um, Fair enough. When you said that. So I know that maybe David was going to answer, but... I think that's you your mess. Clean up your mess. Read my brain. <laughs> No, it's a very good question, and it's one that we always have to be uh, aware of. There's kind of a, how do you stand for, for justice without becoming judgmental? Mm. Uh, and, and that's always kind of a precarious mm -hmm. thing, because to be silent is not an option. Mm -hmm. uh, you're saying something by being silent, so you can't help but say something. So, uh, but here's the thing, when I, when I said that, well, I'll go at it like this. There, judgment is where we separate ourselves from another and, and feed off of it. Discernment yeah. is, is when we separate things, when we, we identify things, and we all have to do that. Um, in fact, Hebrews tells us that that's a mark of maturity, when you can distinguish between good and evil, what's harmful, what's not harmful. Uh, do I trust this person or not? We have to make those kind of decisions. You know, I'm gonna buy a car. Do I think he's telling me the truth? Uh, we can't help but doing those things, separating things. What we can never do is feed off of it. Now, what I'm trying to do there I, part of my job, I think, as a kingdom person is to say what is kingdom and what's not mm -hmm. and, and to try to help educate a little bit about kind of what's going on in the country. And when I say that Derek Chauvin is a face of racism, it, it's just the, the, a police officer with 
his knee on the neck of a black man who's screaming, I can't believe, that just embodies the pattern that we've had throughout our history. Yeah. And, and, it, and, and that's why I think it, it ignited such a response is because it was such a clear-cut example of that. I don't know Derek Chauvin's heart. I pray for him. I pray he get, was restored and, and you know, whatever, whatever led him to do that, I, that that gets taken care of. But I don't know anything about that. But I can say that this is what racism looks like. Yeah. And, and, and so I don't feel superior to him in any way. Um, if anything, seeing that makes me, like, I, I, I have to ask, pray the prayer of the psalmist, you know, search my heart, oh God. Yeah. Is there anything like that in me? Yeah. Mm. And there often is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, that's good. Mm. We have a little bit of a follow-up question that I think, David, you can help us with. Okay. Um, uh, it's interesting that you said that um, it wasn't a judgment you were discerning. And so this person is wondering, um, is there a place for judgment ever where it's healthy um, or, or is judgment different than discernment? So mm. uh, calling out something that's obviously wrong, is that a judgment? Mm. Or is, is there a healthy judgment? Yeah. Or yeah. is that different than discernment? Yeah, no, that was like four questions, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I and mean, one more. because you're so smart. <laughs> yeah, no, yes. Um, I, I think that, like, when I was hearing Greg's sermon and thinking about that question, like, the, the verse that was coming in my mind was Micah 6 8, mm. that what is our responsibility as followers of God, that it is to act justly, and mm-hmm. that there is a component of what it means to be a kingdom follower where we are pursuing justice, and we are pursuing it with all of our heart. We are fighting for things that don't fit into a, a political paradigm, that the kingdom of God is bigger than any of that, and yet, while we're fighting for justice, we can't forget that we are to love mercy. Mm-hmm. The, and, and to fight for justice while loving mercy is to remember, I think, like Greg was getting at at the end of his sermon, that Jesus says, you have heard, uh, you've heard it was said, mm-hmm. don't put your knee on a black man's neck while he's saying, I can't breathe. But I say to you, if you've ever had a racist Mm. or bigoted thought, you are that person. And I think, so I think I'm sitting in that going, okay, fight for justice, but am I fighting for justice to the degree that I can picture myself as Derek Chauvin? And if I can say yes to that, that allows me to get to that third part of, of Micah's verse to walk humbly. Mm-hmm. That if I can walk humbly with God, it, it, it's this reminder that I have nothing superior to Derek Chauvin. That what he did, I have embodied in my own mind. And if I can't go there, then I have no business fighting for justice. And I think if I can't go there, that's when it starts being judgmental. Mm-hmm. I think that's, mm-hmm. I mean, th- then all of a sudden it's us versus them. It's I'm on top of you. I'm in charge of this. You're, I, so I think to, to walk that out, I think that's when we're able to fight for justice, but do it in a way that isn't trying to belittle somebody else. You know, mm-hmm. this is where I think Martin Luther King was such a genius and, mm-hmm. and, um, I think we feel his absence. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's uh, because he he would tell people, yeah, yeah we're fighting for justice, but yeah. we're fighting for justice because we're fighting for freedom, and not just our freedom, but the freedom of the oppressors. And so, the ultimate end game is mercy. We don't want to, you know, send those people to hell. We want them to be transformed. And so, you you, you fight for justice for the sake of mercy. 
But mercy is the ultimate goal, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and if you find yourself wanting to have that, oh, I want to dig it to them thing, well, now, now you're feeding something in you. You're yeah. getting a buzz. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and that's idolatry. Yeah. Mm. You just said um, we're also fighting for the freedom of oppressors, and that tags into one of uh, the questions we have. Do you guys think <laughs> that it is possible that showing mercy is easier for some than others? More specifically, those who have been seen as inferior or felt inferior, mm. not superior, like mm. you were saying in your message, Greg, um, but have been marginalized. Is it? Is it? Mm harder for them to show mercy than it is for someone who mm. usually is in that role of superiority or seeing themselves as superior. Mm. Yeah, um, you would think so. But here's kind of something that's kind of remarkable to me though. I, I was at John Perkins' house last year uh, and had supper with him and um, he just shared some things about growing up from his own life. He was a black man who was just treated so inhumanely and cruelly and belittled and has all these experiences, but he oozed with mercy. Mm. Uh, and, and he goes, because I love Jesus. I've mm -hmm. learned to love white people. Mm. And, and I was just amazed, you know, so, uh, mm. no, it, it's certainly, it, it's gotta be harder. If someone's been oppressing you, the problem of the system, you know, you've been part of the system thing that has just kept you down, the knees, the, the knees always been on your neck. Uh, yeah, I would think having, having, uh, having mercy towards the person doing that to you would be extremely hard. Yeah. So by the power of God, it gets done. On the other hand, it, there are people who are so locked in their judgments, it's, it's very hard for them to be merciful, even though maybe they have no oppressor on them or they have no, right. but it's hard for them because they're locked in their own prison. Right. So, so I don't think you can say what's harder or what's easier yeah. based on you know, an objective kind of criteria. Uh, I know our common sense would say that, but uh, people you think that it should be easy for them to have mercy have a very difficult time of it. Mm -hmm. And right. some who we think no way could they ever show mercy, they demonstrate they it in beautiful ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, just the example that you gave of the Anabaptist who was... Derek Willems, yeah. Just that yeah. was beautiful. Yeah. But then also at the end of your sermon, you said, like, I need to convince some of you that we need mercy. And so I think you're right that sometimes people who don't recognize that they are in need of mercy maybe um, need to show it the most. Well, and, and it's like I said last week, if the reason people don't feel the need for mercy is because we're filling ourselves with our own rightness. Mm. We, we, if you are getting a buzz off your rightness, well then to that degree you don't feel a need for mercy because you're right, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, it's like if you eat chocolate cake, you're not hungry for a healthy salad. Yeah. If you're eating your righteousness, you're not hungry for God's mercy. But we need to be hungry for God's mercy because the truth is we need it. Amen. Mm -hmm. David, I know you are a social media king. You are. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know what my password is for most of my social media accounts. That's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I still think you can help us yeah, out I with this. I have tens of followers. <laughs> tens. <Yeah>. Tens. <laughs> I love it. You guys follow David. No. Uh, um, but I think you can really help us exciting. out. Um, polarization, Greg yeah. talked about that. Yeah, like, yeah. It just feels like we are so far apart and mm -hmm. you can see it, the vitriol between yeah. groups even on social media. Yeah. And I think even people who are quote unquote friends on social media going after one another. Yeah. And so how can one show mercy in those situations on social media? Or is it best just to log off and, <laughs> and think, I have to do it in person. It can't happen online. Uh, yeah. Mm. I, I, you know, 
I remember it was probably, it was early on in uh, my work that I do at, at, at Union Gospel Mission where I, I had this disagreement with a colleague. And, and I remember uh, I, I did the not so smart thing of texting them my frustration. And it was this mature person in faith, much more than myself, who called me up and just said, David, don't ever do that way of communicating to me if that's the message you need to talk to me about. Mm. And so I think, I think we have grown so comfortable with getting out things we would never say in person over mm. social media. Mm. And so I think, I, I think there is this like backtracking we need to do to be able to say, okay, is the message I'm trying to convey one that is really heightening my amygdala, that like I'm really getting amped up over this? And be king, being kingdom people, I think, means having the discipline to say, I can't do that yeah. because it's going to get in the way of my ability to show you who Jesus is and how much he's for you and with you. And, and I think in addition to that, I think that one of the disciplines as a church we need to be modeling is Sabbath. I think if we don't have times where we are disengaging mm-hmm. in order to re-engage, mm-hmm. then all the ways that God wants to remind us who we are and who all the people are that we deem our enemy, if we never have times when God can remind us of that, then all we're doing is walking into that echo chamber and being reminded of how right we are rather than being reminded of the, the truer thing, which is that every one of them was made in the image of God and is worth Jesus dying for. So mm-hmm. I think it's that combination of things that, that we have to cling to mm-hmm. and, and just learn how to um, have disagreements in a way that's going to not... Uh, create separation from uh, from other people mm-hmm. you know it, it's a uh, the thing about a lot of social media anyways is that um like on twitter or instagram or tiktok or whatever those are um <laughs> oh, i know what tiktok is i'm here i'm here what are you talking about oh, tiktok tiktok uh, nope. I, i've never used it but uh anyways uh, you know you have a, to, to to explain something takes time yeah, uh, you know. Here, yeah. I'll let you on the inside of why I said yeah. that. Da, da, da. It takes yeah. time, right? And, and it, social media doesn't lend itself for that. But it's a perfect venue for insulting. Mm. You know, two hundred forty. <laughs> man, you can say a lot, pack a lot of good insults yep. in there. Yeah. You know, and, and it, so it kind of inclines us to, in that direction. Yeah. Uh, we have to be really c- careful about that. Guard yeah. our hearts. Totally. So yeah. I, I honestly don't understand TikTok. I don't. My daughter was using it the other day, and it was something about somebody doing their hair. And it would just, I'm sorry, I, it, it was confusing. I don't get the difference between Instagram and Twitter. I, I, Should we know. just, let's talk about oh, this for a while. Yeah, oh, I, dear. <laughs> <laughs> That's for another panel. Oh, okay. Okay, okay, okay. We'll delve into all that right, later. All right, all right. However, David said something about, uh, in your answer right now, you, you mentioned the Sabbath. Yeah. And I thought that that's really powerful and necessary. And we have a question that's asking, what are some spiritual disciplines mm. that we can practice as believers um, that help us in dealing with this powder keg culture? What are some of the spiritual mm. practices and disciplines that we can um, be doing in our lives? I will go back to, I think this is the most fundamental discipline of our life. Um, well, no, that, this and imaginative prayer, but to, to, to start habituating your brain to when you see a person, regardless of what you see, your first impulse is to bless them mm. and to agree with God that they have unspecified worth. And that's really good to do. Try this discipline. Uh, whatever political party you're affiliated with, especially if you're strongly affiliated with it, I challenge you to this week watch the news that reports it from a different perspective. And as they're reporting it, be blessing them. 
every person be trying to understand why they're saying the things they do mm-hmm. and be trying to bless them and you will confront all you will confront all our little we've all been conditioned by the accuser and he makes yeah. us little accusers and that's mm-hmm. what's that's what's destroying us mm-hmm. we have to work upstream the opposite direction so you'll, you'll confront your accuser self-talk oh that person they would but just stop it right there and realize mercy has to triumph over judgment mm-hmm. Yes, you have all the right opinions in the world. I am sure of it. But they're irrelevant now. As a kingdom person, love mm-hmm. that person. And mm-hmm. yeah, I encourage Christian folks to, to try that. Even as you're saying that and I'm imagining doing that, I'm like... <laughs> oh, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> I, I've had to sit through things and I so don't want to hear this. I don't yeah. want to hear this. But uh, that's why it's a, it's a very good exercise. Okay. Uh, you, you, you can debate it later on, but this time, get good at loving the person mm. first. Mm. Then you debate them later. Mm. And now you can debate them in love. Okay. Otherwise, it's worthless. Yeah. Okay, that's a good challenge. David, any other spiritual disciplines you'd like to throw I in I mean, the, the only other one that came to my mind was practicing the discipline of silence. Mm. Um, both not talking, but also having intentional moments during the day where we're not being cluttered with noise. Because I, I think that there are so yeah. few moments in our day where it's just quiet. Mm. And we can actually both hear all the, the things going on in our brain, but also just w- what are the lies that are showing up in our life, the things that, that the enemy is trying to implant in us that are creating division, rather than actually being able to sit in quiet in a room mm-hmm. and, and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that God wants to do. Yeah. You know, on that point, I think another church, uh, a discipline that's part of the church tradition is the Lectio Divina. And one mm-hmm. dimension of that is uh, to take a little Sabbath, a five-minute, ten-minute, fifteen-minute Sabbath at, at the end of the day, or at some point, to evaluate the day, to mm-hmm. just look back and say, okay, where has God showed up, mm-hmm. and where has the devil showed up, mm-hmm. uh, and and to ask, where have I reflected the love of Christ, and where didn't I, and and to you know have some accountability on that, because yeah. um, otherwise we don't even notice how much we're doing, uh, right. you know, how much we're judging and stuff. Mm-hmm. So we have to step out of that once in a while, mm-hmm. right? Look at it. Really good, really helpful. Um, We, of course, don't have time to get to everything that you guys have sent in, but we do want to thank you for listening, for staying with us, for sending in your questions. We do have time for one more, and I would love to hear from both of of you. This is a question that we've gotten several times in several different ways, and so that tells me that that many people are, are wondering about this. And so if you look at the state of our world today, you know, we're in a pandemic and uh, all of the polarization that's happening. If you look at what happened in our city here locally and what happened in Wisconsin and, and, the, and the aftermath of those things mm-hmm. and what's going on in Portland even this weekend, just, mm-hmm. it, it, just it seems bad. It seems it's, bad. It's, bad. it's, it's yeah. awful. Yeah. Uh, and so there are people who look in scripture and are wondering, is, are we in the end times? Are these sign of the times? Because like, it just looks like it's bad all sure, around us, sure, Armageddon sure. all around. And so mm-hmm. what, what can you say to those who are wondering if we're in the Did end you times? First? Sure, yeah, that's an easy one. Um, <laughs> I, you know, what comes to my mind in that is that when we read scripture, and I think when we read the words of Jesus and, and even much of Paul, I think there is an expectation that we are living as if this is the end times, mm-hmm. uh, that, right. that we are called to do that. Uh, I think the challenge is what does that belief create in a posture of how we're living? Mm. Like, because I think for some people, we can be prone that if it is the end times, my posture is going to be apathy and complacency of, well, 
it's all going to burn anyways. I mean, it's all going downhill. Why don't I, I'll just kind of enjoy the ride. Uh, And yet you see this in Paul's writings where he wrote one letter to the church in in Thessalonica and that one he was telling them, the end is coming soon. And then I think the next letter, he's, he's telling them, stop being so idle. Because I think when he told them the end is coming, they said, oh, well, let's just hang out. And, and then yeah. needed to tell them, you, no, no, no. Like the, a kingdom ethic means right. you do the work that Micah was talking about if this is the end times. And if it is, if there's anything I learned from the words of Jesus, it's we're not going to know it. Uh, right. that <laughs> it it's yeah, not yeah. going to be something we can pick out, but we are supposed to be the kind of people that live with that mindset to act justly, to mm-hmm. love mercy, to walk humbly, mm-hmm. whether this is or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess so that's So instead of living in fear, oh my gosh, is it the end times, walk out the kingdom ways. Yeah. All the more so. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And the thing is that the, the end times in the New Testament, it wasn't about something we're to fear. It's something we're to be looking forward to. Right. Maranatha, come quickly, right, Lord Jesus. Right. Finally, the world's going to be set right. So yeah. it's a good... I'd like to know what you think about it. <laughs> you do? <laughs> yeah. Like, end time stuff. Does it feel like that to you? Um, I don't... Oh, I'm going to get in trouble by my parents, maybe. But <laughs> <laughs> parents, turn off... If you're Sean's parents, turn off television right now. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't live in fear. I, I'm not looking for... Uh, to, to be ushered out quickly while the rest of the world just Suction burns... Up. Yeah, burns to the ground and, and, and yeah, I, uh, left behind. I'm not... I, I, I'm, I don't subscribe to that, so I don't, I'm not fearful of that. I think I'm more of the mindset of if we have limited time, then let's be the, yeah. the best kingdom person we can be and do the most good with the time that we right. have here. And, and the uglier things get, the brighter the light needs to shine. And right. so yeah. that's, that's the way. Like, so if we are in the end times, I agree, we won't know. But if all of this indicator is that, then all the more so for us as kingdom people to, to, to fight against the things that are trying to pull us down. That's good. So Yeah, I, I, you know, if you... Zoom, I, I understand why people would kind of feel like, like this is the end times because in our experience, this is probably as bad as it's ever gotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, you compile on everything. Yeah. It's been the year that just keeps on giving. But if you zoom out and look at things historically, our pandemic is really pretty small by pandemic standards, even yeah. by recent standards. 1918 sure. was a, you know, I, I don't know the number comparison, but it was much, much worse than what we have now. But if you look at the history of pandemics, uh, man, we've had some doozers, you know, the bubonic plague mm-hmm. and then the Julian uh, pandemic uh, in the sixth century that the estimate killed a quarter or more of the population on the planet. Yeah. Um, so it, we, we've seen dark times. And, you know, the America now, it, it is, it feels like it's becoming frayed. The narrative's getting lost. Mm-hmm. We're getting siloed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what, how that's going to go. It may be that this, we, we're on a downhill slope here. But that should not trouble the heart of the disciple. I mean, right. it's not good news, uh, but, but our hope isn't on that. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the Christian faith has seen a lot of empires rise and a lot fall. And, and if, if the Lord doesn't return, we'll see a lot more. And America will be one of them. Yeah. And it, it shouldn't surprise any of us because Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Any, any, any kingdom that's founded on violence is all, uh, in, 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 invariably toppled by violence. Um, it'd be nice to see what would happen if a nation actually repented of that. And, you know, could, but there's never been an example of that. Right. So, so uh, you know, don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus Amen. said. 
keep your eye on, 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 on where this whole thing's going. Uh, Isaiah said, at a time when things were as bad as they could possibly get for Israel, Assyria, this vicious nation, was all around ready to ransack them. And in the middle of that whole thing, he says in Jeremiah 26.3, that, that God will give perfect peace to those whose eyes are steadfast on him. Yeah. So keep your eyes steadfast. Let your heart experience this peace. Amen. And uh, we'll see when it ends. Amen. Mm. In the meantime, we just keep on working. That's right. Allow God to push back that darkness. Be a part of that. Partner with him Mm -hmm. in bringing forth the kingdom light wherever we can. Wherever we can. Thank you all for being with us. Thank you, David. It was really fun having you you here. Appreciate it. Thank you, Greg, for another great word and and your participation on the panel. Bless you guys. Remember, if you have prayer needs, we have Zoom rooms open with uh, prayer partners. So please hop in there and let them pray for you. In the meantime, we love you guys. We are so thankful for you. Have a great rest of your day.